Hello and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. We have a packed episode for you this month. We'll be reviewing Storm Barra and its impacts on Ireland. We'll also take a look at the seasonal forecast for this winter and when we might know if we'll have a white Christmas. But first, we return to COP26 and explore the outcomes of the climate conference last month. We are delighted to be joined by Keith Lampkin from Met Aaron's Climate Services, who attended the conference in Glasgow. So, Keith, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Uh, great to have you back. Those of us uh, who've, uh, who've listened to the previous episodes will know Keith was on talking about Valencia Observatory. So it's great to have you back. Great. Thanks for that, Noel. It's always great to be uh, invited back uh, and always great to talk to you too. So, Keith, you were over at the COP26 conference uh, in November. What was that like as a just as a day-to-day experience? Yeah, no, it was very, very interesting. So COP lasted for, for two weeks there at the beginning of November. I, I was there the first week. And our colleague, John Hanley, who, who did a COP episode with you, uh, was, was there the second week. If your listeners haven't heard that one yet, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, it was, it was exciting. Certainly the first week, you certainly feel the, uh, the, the energy, the adrenaline, the, the motivation. Uh, I heard it once described, uh, COP being uh, almost a, a cross between the National Ploughing Championships and a, and a Nordesh, <laughs> perhaps less wellies and more suits. But there was certainly the kind of a, a way of, of describing it. There was uh, literally thousands of people with different motivations and agendas, but, but very much, uh, very motivated towards the same common target. And the first week is when all the sort of heads of state are there as well, isn't that right? Yeah, that's the way it worked this time around now. So the, the Irish delegation will be over there. The Irish delegation now to, to UNFCCC and to, to COP are led by the Department of Environment and Climate. So they lead it and they're supported by other government departments, and well, including our, ourselves and, and other government agencies. And the way it worked out this time around, a lot of the heads of state were there the first few days. Actually, my plane, when I was flying over there, we were in a holding pattern for about half an hour before we could land because um, a number of dignitary planes were, were landing ahead of us. And as we kind of touched down on the platform, we were able to see Air Force One out the window now as well. So um, there was certainly uh, plenty of, of heads of state in and around the area. How do, how do you think it went? Yeah, listen, there's progress. So, so anyone who's familiar with the COP progress, it, it's, it's not a be-all and end-all. I mean, this was COP26. There was, there was 25 COPs before. So there'll be a COP27 and a COP28. They're all stepping stones towards this kind of global goal of reducing uh, global warming and limiting climate change. So if you were to measure it on that kind of metric, then I think you could definitely see COP26 as a success. If you were to nail down or focus on individual aspects of certain agenda items, you may have differing opinions on whether some of those were a success or otherwise. But, but generally speaking, having the Glasgow Climate Pact, that document that came out of COP, that agreed in a global document, the world is better off and is a further step forward to reducing climate change, having that than not having that. So from, from that overall global perspective, I think COP26 can be regarded as a success. And if we dig into that a little more then say, probably one of the most uh, fundamental things, what progress was made on cutting emissions? Yes, there was two big climate questions and conversations happening over COP26. One was what we call climate mitigation, and that's trying to, how do we, how do we stop uh, it getting worse, ultimately boiling down to reducing emissions, and the other was to do a climate adaptation, how do we adapt to known changes? But adaptation, oh, sorry, the, the mitigation side of cutting emissions, uh, the survey took an awful lot of airtime. We knew before going over the COP 
that these nationally determined contributions, or if you like, plans or promises from countries of how much they're going to reduce their emissions by by 2030. We knew before COP26 happened that the current promises or these current national determined contributions were not enough to achieve the Paris commitment which was keep global warming to well below two degrees and ideally to, to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. If you add the numbers up, you're probably in a region of around three degrees, which is which is nowhere near what Paris kind of said. So that's if, if countries had stuck to their sort of current commitments to reduce emissions, is that right? Yeah, let's say their, their original Paris commitments or their pre-COP26 commitments. So one of the big aims of COP26 was to try and get countries to uh, enhance those commitments and try and do more. That was one of the big aims. And a lot of countries, including Ireland, came to the table with more. I mean, Ireland obviously now are committing to a 51% reduction by, by 2030, which is uh, a fairly impressive uh, goal to, to have. And other countries followed suit. So th there were improvements in these nationally determined contributions, plans, promises, calls what you will, but still not quite enough. As they were all kind of coming out on COP, there was an awful lot of hustle and bustle by a number of different agencies trying to add them all up to try and figure out, well, what magic number does that give us? And if we knew going into COP was what we were around three degrees, if we were to add up all the targets that were now promised during COP, these nationally determined contributions, that kind of gave us a level of around 2.4 degrees, if all these actually got realised, but actually based on what was actually evidence of what was actually been implemented, we were kind of more around 2.7 degrees, that kind of ballpark. And there was some additional pledges that were, were brought along in, in COP as well, and there's some additional agreements. If you were to include all the national determined contributions and all the additional pledges, targets, and agreements, it would bring us closer towards that two degree target, but still nowhere close to that one and a half degree target. And so to address that, then there have been steps at COP26 to encourage countries to revise these targets more frequently. Is that right? Exactly, no, you have it. So originally under the Paris Agreement, every five years, countries would come back and re-examine these nationally determined contributions or these reduction promises. Now, one of the big things that came out of COP26 was rather than wait another five years to examine this again, countries have promised to re-examine this at the next COP and the one after that again. So it's given countries that extra chance to re-examine their, their emissions and hopefully come to the table with more to try and get, at the very least, the, the sums to add up to get closer to the Paris Agreement. Another, like one of the exciting things that came out of COP, I think, was a deforestation pledge. Um, what does it commit? What does that one commit to? Yeah, this is one of the first good news stories out of the blocks. It came in the first few days of, of COP. But this one was, this is 141 countries kind of get together and signed a pledge, including Ireland, which ultimately says they're going to reduce deforestation. Now, forests are really important in the climate story because, as we all know, forest trees, plants, they breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen, and we all need oxygen to, to, to live. But deforestation, removing an awful lot of these forests, reduces the Earth's ability to absorb this extra carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So what it's doing is, is reducing our ability to what we call provide a carbon sink. So there's naturally carbon dioxide in the atmosphere anyway. We're, we know we're adding an awful lot more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and the Earth is absorbing a lot of that through forests. If we reduce the size of forests, we're reducing our ability to actually uh, remove that extra CO2. So what this pledge basically said, in short, was that 
uh, the member countries, the 141 member countries who signed up to it, which in truth covers about 90% of all the forests around the whole world, which is a, a sizable chunk, they've promised to try and reduce uh, the, the cutting down of trees effectively uh, and to promote more sustainable ways uh, of farming. So on paper, that's a, that's a really, really big win. If there was a few cynics amongst us, they may point to the agreement back in 2014 in New York, which had a, a similar commitment. Uh, and if you were to review that 2014 commitment, that didn't really help in reducing deforestation. So fingers crossed uh, this particular one. And there's, there's, there's extra mechanisms without going into too much detail of this new deforestation plan to do with financing and otherwise that make this one more achievable, fingers crossed. But again, it's a, it's, it's a pledge. It, it, really, it's, uh, it's how well we can actually act on that pledge. We'll, will be the, uh, the deciding factor. That plan, I mean, it includes Brazil, obviously, which is, or that pledge, I should say, includes Brazil, which is, which is vital. Um, and I know, again, without going into detail, but there is funding being, being provided, right? Something like 14 billion in funding to, to support countries in this initiative. Exactly. And this is, this is really what people are beginning to learn. I mean, pledges are one thing, but you need to actually put a, a framework in place which makes this advantageous to not cut down trees. I mean, you can't really tell a, a farmer in Brazil or the Congo or somewhere else along the, 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 the equator where a lot of our rainforests are to stop cutting down trees because it's good for the, the planet. I mean, they have families and, and uh, their own economies to support. But if you can make it more advantageous to not cut down the trees, for example, if large suppliers are only buying from sustainable farming plots and not those that used to be rainforests, then all of a sudden it becomes more economically advantaged to, to produce the sustainable farming methods rather than cut down the trees. And this is what a lot of the funding is there to try and support and enable this kind of transition to this sustainable farming, but make it economically advantageous for the farmer to not cut down trees and still be able to earn a living. And I think that's that's one of the big pluses of this particular agreement is the financial package, as you mentioned there, Noel. One of the big stories then, um, Keith, was um, that coal was a big thing to discuss at, at, at COP26. A substantial reduction in coal-fired power plants need, needs to be done by 2030. It just, like, otherwise, it's, you know, we're screwed, basically. <laughs> um, have any commitments been made towards this? Yeah, this, this stole a lot of headlines, this one. Again, we knew going into to, to COP that we around the world we have, I mean, 8,000 plus coal-fired power stations. Mm. And, and collectively, they, they power over a third of the Earth's electricity comes from coal-fired uh, power stations because coal is a relatively cheap source of fuel uh, in order to produce electricity. So a lot of countries who are rich in coal uh, would, would naturally use this. But from a, a climate point of view, coal is one of the biggest polluters. It adds an awful lot of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, as well as other uh, pollutants, which are bad for humans to breathe and so forth as well. So there's a lot of advantages of reducing coal. Now, I was, I was home from COP at this stage. COP went on an extra day longer than it was supposed to. And I was, I was watching the, the, effectively the, the closing ceremony live on, on, on TV. And the drafts at that point had wording in there where they talked about... Um, the phasing out of coal. This is a huge, big achievement for, for COP. previous COPs had, had never had wording uh, as strong or along these lines. Uh, and literally, literally in the last few minutes before the, 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 the final pact was, was agreed, uh, India came in backed by China and they insisted on a changing of the wording to that particular paragraph. They insisted that it needed to be changed from the, the phasing out to the phasing down. 
on coal. Now it's only one word, but it means so much. I mean, the phasing out means stop using coal. Phasing down, well, that's a little ambiguous. We're not really sure what that means. I mean, and how do you actually measure that? Uh, and that came, I was watching it live on television and my heart just absolutely sank to see that last uh, changing uh, of, of the words. But um, that's, that's where we're at. I would say though, it's still, even though it's a watered down version and a commitment on coal, it's still much better to have there than not have there. I don't know if many of your listeners are, are sports fans, but the way I, I like to think of it, it's a bit like your team is playing in the Champions League away from home and they're 1-0 up and literally they can see it in injury time. You go home with the draw and okay, the, the away goal as well. It could have been so much better, but it's still better than nothing. <laughs> That's a perfect analogy. Um, and I think that's, it's kind of one of the first real hard references to to fossil fuels in the COP agreements, right? Even though they've been going for a while, that they've uh, it's sort of been tiptoed around in some ways. It's, it's absolutely bizarre and old, to be honest with you. So, like we say, we're at COP twenty six. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol came in in COP three, uh, and, and and ever since then, all these packs or these agreements that come out of COPs never actually mentioned the phasing down of fossil fuels or, or coal. So the fact that it's in there at all is a big plus. And again, the fact that it's in there, it gives something for the next COP and the one after that to actually build on. So definitely a, a watered down version on what we were expecting, but certainly positive to have it in there in that form. And I suppose one of the big incentives for countries to develop new energy sources and greener solutions and things like that is having access to finance, which is particularly tricky for developing countries that maybe are certainly haven't contributed the same amount to uh, emissions that that developed countries have. So obviously climate finance, as we talked uh, with John in the previous episodes, was a really important part of, of COP. One of the agreements or the, the plans from Paris was that 100 billion per year would be made available for developing countries. Has this been met or, or will this be met looking to the future? Yeah, so we, plans are great. But like we've already touched off, it's important to actually implement those plans. And finance is the enabler of action for these plans. So finance is critically important. Now, going back a long time, I'm going to say it's over 10 years ago, there were previous commitments that the so-called richer worlds would provide $100 billion a year in finance to so-called poorer countries to help them tackle uh, the, the climate challenge. Now, at COP, there's a lot of discussion about the financing on this, and a lot of made a lot of press and a lot of airtime as well, how this commitment wasn't actually made. But if you look at the most recent figures, the most recent figures available at the time were the 2019 figures. Uh, 100 billion wasn't available, but, but 80 billion was. Now, I used to be good at maths, and I can tell you that 80 billion is, is not 100 billion, but 80 billion is also not zero either. So there is certainly finance flowing it wasn't that magic number which some of the developing countries were, were a little upset about. Again, one of the positive things that came out of COP26 was that there was a renewed commitment to this target. What was agreed was that over the next five years, 500 billion, so 100 billion on average per year over the next five years would be made available. And that commitment was made, which is effectively just doing what they said they do more than 10 years ago or so. But again, knowing that that money is actually there and will be available, again, helps to plan and start to enable that action, knowing that this action will actually be financed. The financing for this is like, will it be for mitigation or adaption or both? So mitigation as in, 
will it be there to help countries cut emissions or will it be there for them to adapt to, to climate change? Is, yeah, you're really scratching under the hood here now, Liz. This is, this is really getting to the crux of it. Yeah, so again, a, a lot of commentary coming back from the developing countries were, uh, were along this kind of topic. So up to now, an awful lot of this financing had been towards reducing emissions and mitigation. So a classic example, okay, close down some power, uh, coal power plants and we'll build some renewable plants in their place. Okay, but so that helps from a, an emission and a climate target perspective. But these uh, renewable plants, let's say, are, are also potentially profitable. They have a return on investment. And those people investing that money may be entitled to a return on some of that investment. So some of the developing countries are kind of saying, well, listen, thanks for your money. That's, that's great. But we'd much rather spend it on adaptation. We, we, we probably do a pretty good job ourselves uh, raising an awful lot of this money for projects that have a return on investments. What we need this climate finance money for is really the adaptation side. It's the, it's the flood defense systems. It's putting in the early warning weather systems. It's these kind of national projects that don't necessarily have a private return on investment necessarily, or that's, that's obvious, but certainly have return on investment from a, a national and an economic perspective. And that's where a lot of developing countries want to spend that money. Now, what the United Nations, they, they heard this, uh, fully understood it, and were pushing towards a 50-50 split, that this money should hopefully be split half mitigation, uh, reduce emissions, and half adaptation. They didn't quite get that. Um, there, there was commitments to increase the amount of, of this money to be spent on adaptation, kind of the, the country planning, but nowhere close to 50-50. To so again, a step in the right direction, but uh, not fully to what the developing countries wanted. In terms of damage that's actually occurred then due to, say, a storm or some climate-related event, are developed countries willing to assist with, 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 with the cost of that damage? I guess they wouldn't want to find themselves where they're sort of liable endlessly for, for this kind of damage. Yeah, this is uh, well, an area of what we call loss and damage, and we'll begin to hear more and more of this uh, at more recent COPs. So the, the difficulty here is, as you say, developing countries who are some of the countries who were impacted quite badly by the increase in frequency of extreme events caused by, by climate change kind of say, well, we want some of this damage paid for by the, the richer countries who have been adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere much longer than us and are partly our fault for, for climate change. Now, the richer countries, as you say, don't want to emit liability and don't necessarily want to pay this money in compensation because they're opening themselves to effectively endless lawsuits. Plus, even if they wanted to pay, and they don't, but even if they wanted to pay, it's not quite clear how this would actually work because there have always been extreme weather events and there always will be extreme weather events, even if climate change didn't exist. So how do you figure out how much of this damage was actually caused by climate change. Now, there is a, an evolving branch of climate science called climate attribution, which attempts to do just that, but it's still quite young and it's not quite an exact science. So it's quite hard to actually say how much of extreme weather storms were exactly to do with climate change. And even if you could figure that out, then who exactly is to blame and who pays for that? So the conversation is happening, but it's still very far from, uh, from being resolved. And it's, it's one of the items actually that kind of got kicked into the next COP to, to continue those discussions. But uh, I think that we're a long way from seeing um, that one come to any conclusion anytime soon. 
And I suppose like with the the Paris agreements stuff, you know, it's it sounds like we didn't really quite get there, like um with with regard, you know, you were you're talking earlier about maybe 2.7 degrees Celsius is what we got to when you do the maths. But was there renewed commitment to to um, get to the Paris Agreement uh, targets, like the like the commitment to well below two degrees? Was 1.5 kept alive? Yeah, so, I mean, the science hasn't changed. If anything, the science has actually become more clear. Recently, before COP26, we saw the release of the IPCC's Working Group 1, the physical science report. And if anything, that tells us that the importance uh, and, and the stark changes that happen as we go above one and a half and two degrees. So there's no agreement or plan to change those numbers. What was, what was set in stone in Paris was set on the, the latest sound science guidance. And like I say, that guidance has, has only increased in extra science. So, so there's, no, there's no plan to change those numbers. Uh, th there is obviously a, a lot of the commitments that were made at COP was to try and get closer to those numbers, but it's like I say we're we're getting there, but the, what the national determined contributions are showing us is well, we're not there yet. It was interesting as you mentioned there, Liz. So one of the mantras going into COP twenty six was uh, keeping one point five alive, and I, and I got a lot of uh, airtime and a lot of press, uh, and some people were kind of measuring the success of COP26, uh, if it kept the 1.5 alive or not. And while I was almost crying behind my couch, watching the, the changing of the wording to the, to the, to the coal uh, for the, the, the last few hours and signing off of, of, of COP, uh, literally as the climate pact was, was, was being signed off on, I think it was uh, Alex Sharma, the, the, the president of COP26 itself, uh, he kind of summed up the keeping 1.5 alive, I think far better than, than I could. And, the, the way he put us, and he put it quite well, he, he said, we have kept 1.5 within reach, but its pulse is weak. It's stark. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Keith, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, we, Keith. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Next up, we're joined by Paul Moore from MetAirn's Climate Services to hear what's in store for this winter. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, I suppose we, we just wanted to kind of um, touch base on um, the winter forecast for 2021-22. Um, are you able to give us a, a broad overview of where the seasonal forecasts um, are in relation to at the general picture for Ireland this winter? Hi Liz and Noel, how are you? Um, yeah, that's no problem. I can do that for you. So the seasonal forecast for December, January, February, the, our winter um, just came out at the end of last month. So I put together a forecast at, at, at every month for the following three months, um, which is just used internally at the moment. Um, and I kind of try, I, I use the, the global models. So the Copernicus, um, put together all the global models, seasonal models into an ensemble. Um, so the Copernicus Climate Change Service, um, so they, they, they bring all the global models, say from, from Italy, the US, 
um, the ECMWF, um, the UK model, UK uh, long range model, the Japanese model. Um, so I think there's seven, eight models now together and they put it in an, an ensemble and they come out with a prediction for the season. Um, and seasonal predictions are not like you're not predicting small scale events, you're just predicting whether it's going to be um, probability of warmer than average or cooler than average conditions at a particular location or probability of wetter or drier than average conditions at a particular location. So for Ireland, for the, for um, so I've been doing I've been doing this for the for a year now, and in general they're fairly, the accuracy is pretty good, um, from the models, but when it comes to winter, winter is the most difficult season to forecast because there's lots of other parameters and teleconnections that are involved. For example, winter forecast last year, so last winter, um, the forecast for Northern Europe was from the models was generally for milder than average conditions. But then a, what's called a sudden stratospheric warming uh, happened. So the polar uh, stratospheric vortex was weakened and kind of broke down at the beginning of January last year. And that led to cooler than average conditions for January and February in Northern Europe. So the models are, are very, find that very difficult to pick up from a long way out, uh, whether the stratospheric polar vortex is going to go through a weakening phase or a breakdown. Predicting it three years, three months into the future is very difficult. And the stratospheric polar vortex really is important for our, for the weather in northern, well, all over the northern hemisphere, really, for the winter season. A strong stratospheric polar vortex leads to generally a zonal jet stream. Um, so we'd get a We'd get our normal kind of westerlies more often. Uh, we'd get maybe stormy conditions. We'd get high pressure to the south, low pressure to the north, and generally positive North Atlantic oscillation mode. Uh, whereas a weak stratospheric polar vortex um, generally leads to more high latitude blocking. It tends to push the jet stream further south and can lead to colder spells or colder periods for up to a month or two months. Um, for northern Europe and northwestern Europe, so we're under the influence of a lot of a lot of different features there, right? There's a lot of different sort of global and European features that that may influence our, our winter. In fact, we, we we talked a bit about that in a previous episode on on seasonal forecasting. So if anyone's interested in that, on, on getting a lot more of the detail, I, I suggest you go back and and dig into that and dig into that episode. In terms of the picture for this this coming winter, how 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 are things looking? Is it going to be milder or wetter? Well, it's it it's a very complex picture this winter because the models are showing it to be milder. Um, for for Ireland, say for Northwestern Europe, say I'll pick out in particular, um, the models are, are showing showing it to be quite a bit above average. Well, very high probability of above average temperatures, above average temperatures in Northwestern Europe. Um, and about average rainfall. There's other factors. So the models are predicting three months ahead for that, but there's other factors like the polar stratospheric vortex is strong at the moment, but there is a um, easterly descending quasi-binomial oscillation at the moment, which um, basically means these are high-level winds above the tropics, above the equator in the stratosphere. They, they alternate from easterly to westerly and, and descend down from the stratosphere to the top of the troposphere uh, over about a two-year period. 
Um, so when they're easterly descending, the it, it's it's there's a higher probability that the stratospheric polar vortex will be disturbed. So it's, at the moment, the stratospheric polar vortex is very strong, which is leading to our positive North Atlantic oscillation and stormy conditions that we've had in the last few weeks. The, I, I suppose the reasoning with with why the seasonal forecasts for, seasonal forecast models struggle with this is like um, because it's not always clear um, how how much influence the stratosphere, which is the layer of atmosphere, which is above actually the troposphere where all our weather happens, um, but how the stratosphere will interact with the troposphere. There's lots of uncertainty as to um, how how those two things can affect each other. And, and that's why there's kind of, um, I guess, you know, this kind of disconnect, um, like, you know, we're looking at milder weather, but, you know, this, the, the kind of the stratosphere and the quasi biennial oscillation um, information would suggest that maybe it might not be mild. It might, might actually be um, another season where we could see colder, um, colder air coming down um, like, you know, with the jet displaced to the south of, of northern Europe. Is that right? And yeah, so if the stratospheric polar vortex is strong, it generally keeps all the cold air kind of tucked away up in the north, up, up in polar regions. Um, and the milder air in the middle latitudes where, where we live. So when that weakens, a flood of cold, like it can release the colder air further south into the into the middle latitudes when we get a more meridional um, um, flow of the jet stream. That's so a wavy, in, a wavy flow. A wavy yeah. flow. So you can get mild air moving north in one place and really cold air moving south into the middle latitudes in another place. Um, but when the stratospheric polar vortex is strong, it just it keeps it all tucked up uh, away in the, in polar regions and keeps our jet stream strong and going from west to east without going north and south. There's another consideration actually this winter as well, which is the La Nina that, that's, that's happening at the moment. So a co the cooler um, area of cooler uh, sea surface temperatures just off the, the uh, west coast of South America, stretching across the Pacific. So it, generally when, uh, with the La Nina, regular La Nina, we get kind of, we can get more blocked cooler periods in December, but it tends to lead to a more zonal, more our typical weather westerlies in January and February. So that'd be yeah. more sort of high pressure than in December, like clearer, yeah. clearer sun, yeah, like, cold days. Yeah. So basically what's kind of forecast over the next three or four weeks is there's a lot of high pressure forecast. So that's generally what you'd expect in La Nina when the stratospheric polar vortex is strong. And then if the stratospheric polar vortex stays strong, January, February will, will will revert to more positive North Atlantic oscillation westerlies for us. Um, but at this year, the, what's looking like at the moment is the La Nina will be a little bit more um, easterly based. That's to maybe just to summarize that picture then, are we saying that sort of the, the winter seasonal forecast this year is looking in general, probably a little bit milder. That's what the, most of the models are saying. But there's this chance that we'll have, because of the La Nina conditions, a likelihood of maybe some drier, brighter weather during December and then reverting back to that more like stormy, uh, usual sort of uh, westerly uh, systems coming in then for, for January and February. 
yeah, that's what's looking like at the moment. If, if this block weather that's, that's coming up over the next three or four weeks manifests itself into a region where, like a, a blocking high pressure over the, over the Ural Mountains in, in Russia, that's a favorable, favorable uh, position for wave breaking to, to uh, disrupt the stratospheric polar vortex. So depending on where it is blocking over the next three or four weeks happens, will will uh, show kind of what's going to happen in January and February, whether the stratospheric polar vortex stays strong or not. And just because it says milder overall, it doesn't mean that um, we're not going to get cold, <laughs> cold at times um, this winter too, as as yeah. we're certainly experiencing um, the the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the flows, it's, it, the high pressure builds out to the west as the flow starts coming in from the north. We're we're still going to get those northerly cold air flows, but the north the North Atlantic and um, the North Atlantic is mostly the, the sea surface temperatures are mostly above average. So if we, get, if we are going to get our usual westerly set westerly winds, it stands to reason that our temperatures overall are going to be um, above average as well, because it's coming over above average uh, sea surface temperatures. I'm sure, Liz, that uh, I know for the last few weeks, I've had people asking me what the, what the weather's going to be like on Christmas Day and if we'll have a white Christmas. And this is obviously not quite seasonal forecasting, but it's still pretty, pretty long term. How many days out realistically will we will we know uh, what the weather will be like on Christmas? And and say if we were hoping for a white Christmas, what kind of what kind of features should we be looking out for? Do you think? Um, well, realistically, I think you know I'm I'm going to be a forecaster about this and say five days <laughs> um, because because it's winter because winter is a volatile season and things can change very quickly as we saw with Storm Barra. Um, so really, um, to have a really clear idea, uh, we're talking five days, but for snow, um, I suppose we're looking, we're looking at the wind direction needs to be coming from a cold direction. Well, high pressure isn't good for snow because, uh, high pressure does very little precipitation really. Um, so if you've got a high pressure slap bang over Ireland, um, that, that would uh, limit any precipitation happening. So, um, that'd be more of a frosty situation with like kind of clear skies. Um, but if the high pressure say was over Scandinavia, then you might get an easterly flow setting up and that could bring showers, um, from, you know, the Irish sea and, and places like that. Um, and so you could get snow showers in that, but, um, and as equally, if, um, if you have a northwesterly flow, so maybe high pressure over Greenland um, and you've got a northwesterly flow and um, kind of low pressure in the vicinity of Ireland, then you kind of would get showers of snow um, coming in from the northwest. So obviously northwestern areas would be um, more likely to see snow um, in that kind of scenario. So it, it really, yeah, we won't really know um, until like, I would say, Really, the twentieth of December, we will know what Christmas okay. Day is looking Noel's like. Looking to see, Noel's looking to see whether to put a bet on a white. Christmas. <laughs> That's right. We we talked about that before in a in a in a previous Christmas episode. I think it's one flake of snow at Dublin Airport. So yeah, yeah. Uh, check That's in then on, on the twentieth to see. <laughs> what some, the odds are. some of the bookies want one centimeter on the ground or something. Depends what what bet you're making. I think. So Liz, you mentioned Storm Barra there, and and we're recording this on the 10th of December, so just a few days after uh, after that event. And, and Paul, you, you've been summarizing some of the the main features of that storm. Uh, how, how severe did it get in terms of, say, winds, for example? I mean, how, how strong were those winds? 
No, yeah, there was there was um there was no overall records broken. Um, there's a few, uh, but a, but it was a very long lasting event, and it, and it was, um, extreme in certain circumstances. Like five counties of Ireland experienced red level winds, sustained ten minute winds. For a further two counties, um, experienced orange level sustained winds, and then. A further six more counties sustain, uh, got yellow level sustained winds. Now, um, so what happened like with, with Storm Barra, when it moved to the north of the jet stream, the jet stream really wound it up like it kind of like wound it up like a spinning top, you know, and, and released it just off the west coast of Ireland. So it reached its highest intensity before it reached Ireland and um, when the strongest winds were out over the ocean. And, and then it kind of it just let it drift over the country really slowly slowly the jet stream wasn't there to push it on through really quickly anymore so as it was filling very very slowly as it was uh, getting weaker very slowly it was just drifting across the country so it was, that's why it was such a long lasting event and it was only um, diminishing in strength very slowly as well so like the on the tuesday morning casement um got its highest winds and it was orange level casement in dublin but it wasn't until the Wednesday afternoon, the Dublin airport got its strongest winds from a completely different direction. So Casement got its south southeasterly winds, got the strongest winds the neck. The following day, it was north or west northwesterly winds at Dublin airport reached its strongest winds. So it was a, I think the uh, winds were like gusting um, to storm force in at Macehead for like 48 hours or something. So it was a very long lasting event as the storm meandered slowly across the country and you mentioned there about the the spinning top as you put it um some of some of the media reports around it would have used this term called an atmospheric bomb which a more meteorological term we would use is explosive cyclogenesis and this is the idea that the storm is developing really rapidly i think to get that term it has to drop by 24 hectopascals in, in 24 hours or something like that but but the drop for Barrow was 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 even more than that. It was quite significant, wasn't it? Yeah, it was quite extreme. It dropped um, uh, fifty five hectopascals in twenty four hours. So that's you know you know very extreme cyclogenesis, and it, it got down to nine five seven point two hectopascals just off the west coast. That that's when it bottomed out, bottomed out. And um, so yeah, it got to really really intensified really quickly. And Liz, I remember looking at some of the forecast models at least a week before Storm Bar arrived, and they were showing this feature, uh, which is kind of incredible when you think about that. As we've just said, this storm didn't really almost exist 24 hours before it hit Ireland. And yet a week before that, the models were showing it and showing it quite accurately. Um, did, the, did the forecast in terms of like, say, where it was going to go and the timing and severity of it, did that very much in the lead up to it? Um. It did in a way, um, like, you know, I think Ireland was always in the firing line um, and, and certainly that, that's, that's what had our attention. Um, but uh, where exactly it was going to end up um, was, uh, you know, varied um, run to run quite a bit um, in the lead up. Um, but by Sunday, it was, it was becoming very kind of certain 
um, like whereabouts the, the low center would be. And that became very important in uh, trying to decipher where the strongest winds would be, because um, with, a, with a, a low center like that, you're looking at the uh, southeastern quadrant of the low. And that's where the kind of the strongest winds are going to um, are going to be um, on on the low, the, the, the south of the center. Um, and so pinpointing where the center of the low is going to be um, and when it hits the country and then uh, like finding it, it will kind of dictate where the strongest winds are going to be in the country. And it won't be near the low because um, like, you know, you've you know, from hurricanes and stuff like that, where you have, um, you know, you have in the middle of the eye, you have this area that's just like really calm winds and blue sky. Now, I'm not saying a mid-latitude cyclone is similar to a hurricane, but it, the same uh, kind of idea applies that the winds are slow around a low. Um, so at the center of the low, the winds are light, the eye of the storm, it's all, the winds are light. So we had that situation, um, I think, especially in Galway, where where the low actually, you know, made landfall and, and where it tracked across. We had like really gusty winds in the morning in the southeasterly before the low came on shore. And then the winds just got light. They just stopped. And um, and that actually happened in Dublin, but it was for a different reason, <laughs> because um, we had southeasterly winds and Dublin really gets it in a southeasterly. But then the wind just veered southerly. And we had um, sheltering from the Wicklow Mountains. And so the wind stopped and the seagulls came out. <laughs> and, and then, so then, but as the low kind of traversed slowly across Ireland, and it was kind of blocked by the synoptic state, synoptic situation, because, and what I mean by that, the broad scale picture, there was kind of a high pressure over kind of, not even Scandinavia, it was kind of Eastern Scandinavia, more like Russia. Um, like, and it was kind of blocking kind of the flow so you had this spinning top coming towards us that was had loads of energy in it and then it just kind of ran into the high um, that was to the the northeast of it and um and then it just um and it was also starting to fill so then it just kind of slowed down and just kind of like it tried to kind of mope its way across ireland but if you think about it that low was happening so it was turning around um, in an anti-clockwise direction. So the winds went southeasterly and then they went all around the clock and then they went northwesterly. And obviously people, will people felt um, the strongest winds at different times, just based on their exposure. Like, you know, there'll be different parts of different counties that will feel a southeasterly and then different counties will feel a northwesterly. As Paul's example showed, Casement Aerodrome in Dublin had the highest winds in a southeasterly because that's because Casement's direction, you know, particular site in Dublin is like, you know, it really gets it in a, in a southerly. So a, south, a southeasterly, southerly, southwesterly, like that's that's its wind. It's mm. it's um it's when it hits its highest winds. But Dublin airport's highest winds are always in a northwesterly. It really gets it in a westerly, northwesterly. So um so it really depends on your exposure as well. Um, so when the northwesterlies kicked in along the west coast in Galway and Mayo, that's when and they Sligo. had their strong and Sligo, and Sligo definitely and Sligo and Donegal. Um, that's when they got their strongest winds. Um, but the the thing was, you know, for the for those counties in the southwest, um, like uh, Cork and Kerry, they had a sustained period of very strong winds because they were in that kind of south 
East Quadrant. Um, and that actually, I know, I know that, you know, when the low actually got, got onto um, Galway and, and made landfall there, about half an hour later, uh, Shirkin Island in Cork recorded its highest gust. Mm. So that, you know, it kind of was like, you know, 135 kilometers per hour, like, you know, like I think the, the low, you know, between 11 and 12 on Tuesday kind of came on shore. And that's when Shirkin 12Z, 1200 um, on Tuesday, that's when Shirkin, um, you know, went, yep, I, I can feel it. <laughs> like, um, it's, it's, it's happened. But I think the, the, this was a real challenging storm to communicate um, because there was so much going on with it. Like there, there, were, there were hazards, um, like, you know, the wind was obviously the biggest hazard, but there was also like, they had snow, <laughs> like for a time in, like, you know, there's snow reported on the roads in like Mayo, um, Saigo, um, Leitrim and Donegal on the morning, on the Tuesday morning. And they had very, like, the winds weren't that bad there either. And then you had these, like, really strong southeasterlies, like, you know, over the rest of the country um, and, and heavy rain. <laughs> um, and and then, then the winds got light. Then there were northwesterly. There was, there was a lot going on and coastal flooding as well. So, um, yeah, and, and as well, I think it was an unusual event because it was so long-lived because usually with these kind of rapidly deepening lows that come to Ireland, they just, you know, they zip through in about six hours and they're done, you know, and they've, they just leave all the damage behind. But this one was like going, I'm going to do a bit of damage here and then I'm going to do more damage later on here. So um, it was a different sort of event, um, quite long lived and um, yeah, an interesting um, storm to follow. And certainly like dropping the 55 hectopascals in in 24 hours was huge because usually with, um, but not usually, but you know, with those bomb cyclones or explosive cyclogenesis, as Paul said, it's usually 24 hectopascals in 24 hours. And that was, this was more than double that. Mm. Um, so it was like at the tail end of the climatology um, with regard to bomb cyclogenesis. Um, and for it to be coming towards Ireland as a forecaster was quite alarming <laughs> to say the least. I could imagine. <laughs> Is there is there an outlook, Paul, in the winter seasonal forecast in terms of uh, like a prediction of how stormy or, or the how roughly like how many number of storms you think you might have, or is that something that's that's included in the forecast? Um, in the seasonal forecast, it's not really because you, you, only small shifts in the jet stream a bit further north. You know, the storms go a go to a different place, go to Iceland instead of us. So. For a three-month period, you, you can't really predict where where the storms are going to go. I mean, when the stratospheric polar vortex is strong and it's coupled with the tropospheric polar vortex and all the momentum is going from west to east, you know, there's more likelihood of strong storms developing. But where, but where they're going to go in the Atlantic or, or west, northwest Europe is still up for grabs, you know. All right. Well, Paul, that's been really interesting. Thanks for giving us an overview of that and for... Uh discussing Storm Barrow with us and uh, we hope we'll have you back on the podcast soon. That's great. Thanks very much, Noel. Thanks, Liz. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Paul. That brings us to the end of this episode and our episodes for 2021. 
Thanks again to Keith and Paul for joining us this month and to all our guests and contributors this year. We'd be delighted to hear your thoughts on the podcast and on any climate or weather related topics. So please do reach out to us on the MetAaron and RTE weather social channels or drop us an email at podcast at met.ie. Thanks for tuning in this year and for joining us on a whole range of explorations on how things like weather influences the growing of food, the spread of diseases like COVID and malaria, the operations of our search and rescue teams, and the many ways that climate change is affecting our planet. If you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to the MetAaron podcast wherever you get your podcasts and do check out our previous episodes. We'll be back again in the new year. So until then, thanks for listening and happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. The Met Aaron podcast was researched and presented by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick and Liz Walsh. Production and editing is by Jamie Lanvon.